So it was a terrific melting pot of expertise, fueled, I think, by a lot of excitement about the potential for the program. We were all uh, really convinced by the science um, that if we could stick these bits together, we'd have something really special. Hello and welcome to the MTP Connect podcast. I'm Caroline Jewell. Today we celebrate a milestone research discovery that could lead to a treatment for conditions like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease, motor neurone disease and even asthma. The innovation was developed out of the University of Queensland in partnership with Trinity College in Dublin and the startup company spawned by the research, Inflazome, was recently acquired by Roche in a deal worth around $600 million. It's one of Australia's largest ever biotech deals. And to discuss this achievement, I'm joined by Professor Kate Schroeder and Professor Ian Henderson from the University of Queensland's Institute for Molecular Science, or the IMB. Professor Schroeder is a co-inventor of the IP behind Inflazome and director of the Centre for Inflammation and Disease Research at IMB. Professor Henderson is IMB's director. Welcome, Kate and Ian. G'day, Caroline. Lovely to meet you today. I'm going to kick this chat off with a question to you, Kate. Can you take us back to the start of the Inflazome story and how this research partnership came to be and this focus on inflammation? Like everything, it's a bit of a funny story and it all really centres around people. You know, there's uh, no ability to do science without people. So this started with um, a colleague of mine, Luke O'Neill, who uh, had read a, an old paper from Pfizer. So this was a paper in the 90s um, from the, the big pharmaceutical group Pfizer, who had reported uh, that they had found a molecule that blocked IL-1 secretion. So IL-1 is a key molecule that drives inflammation. Luke is a giant in the field. He's both very tall, so he's you know physically a giant, but he's also a giant in stature in the field. He's a very big player in the inflammation and innate immunity field. And he's been working for, you know, 20, 30 odd years on uh, interleukin-1 signaling. So he was reading this paper and was very interested because he knew that if we could block IL-1, we can block a whole bunch of different diseases. So he was keen to follow up on this old paper. Um, it was a drug program that was actually ditched by Pfizer. And um, he was keen to sort of grab the molecules and start seeing what they did. And um, uh, he had um, two... Uh, issues that he had to solve in order to do that. Um, he didn't have uh, medicinal chemistry expertise, um, so he couldn't actually get hold of the molecules, the drugs. And also his uh, lab is very has been very focused on signaling pathways um, uh, downstream of this inflammatory mediator IL-1, but he didn't have so much expertise on the pathways that uh, produce IL-1, which it looked like these, um, these old Pfizer drugs targeted. So um, he, he was sort of in the middle of that conundrum when um, he happened to meet an IMB group leader, Matt Cooper, uh, at a conference. Um, and he and I already knew each other. Uh, and he discovered that Matt works here at the IMB. Luke's had a long association with IMB, actually. I think he was on our scientific director board at one stage. Um, so he was very familiar with the work that went on here. And uh, he suggested that three of us get together and collaborate um, with uh, Matt Cooper uh, producing the, co the, the chemistry, doing, you know, making the molecules, and um, uh, me doing the um, end of the, the work that um, was about trying to understand how these molecules work to block um, interleukin-1 beta secretion. So it's really just this 
interesting little collection of a trio. It started with a trio. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, and we all had very different expertise um, that came together really nicely and compliment in a complementary manner that allowed us to go all the way from sort of the molecular mechanisms of um, the signaling by this complex called the inflammasome, which is what I work on, to targeting it with drugs, which was what Matt Cooper was working on, um, and all the way then through to the diseases that you could possibly treat with this, which was what uh, Luke was um, uh, very well uh, skilled in. So it was a terrific melting pot of expertise, fueled, I think, by a lot of excitement about the potential for the program. We were all uh, really convinced by the science um, that if we could stick these bits together, we'd have something really special. How long ago is that, Kate? Oh, so this would have been about 2013, I believe. I, I started really working on in earnest on this in 2014, um, but some of those early conversations between Matt and Luke were in 2013. So um, although that sounds terribly long time ago, <laughs> it actually, in, in the sort of drug discovery and design and development space, that's actually quite a short amount of time ago, really. Um, this has been a, a, pro, a project that's just had its own life and... Uh, really, uh, you know, gone through all of the barriers at sort of breakneck speed, which has been amazing and fantastic. Have you always had an inflosome lab? Is that been your focus, the inflosome area? So the, the company is inflosome and the signaling pathway that I work on is the inflammasome, which is very similar, yeah, <laughs> for, for obvious reasons. So this is a, um, an area I came to in the late 2000s. Um, so I've been working on inflammation just since I started my PhD. So mechanisms um, by which your body drives these inflammatory responses for, for good and for bad. You know, um, obviously these things are, these processes protect us from infection, but they also drive a myriad of diseases. So um, I came to this um, area, as I said, in the late 2000s. I'd seen this amazing paper that came out in 2002, which was the very first report of an inflammasome and was um, a real turning point in inflammation biology, I would say. And uh, in this paper, the discovery of the inflammasome, this paper showed that there, there was a molecular machine that essentially controlled the activity of interleukin-1-beta, this pro-inflammatory mediator that mediates inflammation and also diseases. So um, I'd kept my eye on this literature during my PhD um, and uh, all of these new papers kept popping up that showed how closely related this signaling system is to disease in humans. Um, and I was very quickly trying to engineer my movement into this field uh, because I felt like it had such potential for, for really treating some of the, the wicked health problems that society faces. So um, I was very keen to get into this area, both because the the signaling pathway is really cool. It's just very niche and uh, very interesting and so many big unknowns, uh, but also just because of the clear potential for this sort of work to translate into real life, you know, real life impacts onto patients. So um, I was very keen to, to work in this field and, and my um, early impressions that guided my movement into this field have only been reinforced, I think, by what's happened in the field since then. The, the links between inflammasomes and disease just keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger, which so it's been a, it's been a wonderful um, journey to be on at this time. When you um, realised that your research could have p enormous potential impact for patients, uh, were you looking at a couple of diseases or were you kind of thinking along every possible inflammation <laughs> pathway? 
So when I joined this field, I was thinking more about your sort of traditional inflammatory diseases, things like arthritis, these genetic diseases of autoinflammation. So there are these diseases where you have a mutation in an inflammasome protein, which causes it to be overactive. Uh, and these patients have terrible bouts of inflammation. It's essentially like they've got the worst possible flu you could prop you could ever have, but they have it every two weeks for their entire lives. And uh, this can uh, be so severe that these people die in uh, late uh, childhood or early adulthood. So um, w without treatment, that is. So I was thinking more of these traditional inflammatory diseases. But what we now know is that there are a whole bunch of other diseases which are not the ones that people immediately think of when they think of inflammatory disease. People think of arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, you know, these sorts of diseases. Um, but I'm talking about things now like cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, um, and what's been really interesting in the last, say, five or so years is the really strong links that have come up between inflammation and neurodegenerative disease. Now, this was always studied by neuro neuroscientists, uh, neurobiologists, um, who were studying um, the function of neurons somewhat divorced from things like inflammation processes. But it's now become really clear that these are really central disease driving processes um, that drive cognitive decline, neurodegeneration, and um, you know a whole bunch of different diseases, including Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, motor neuron disease. Uh, so very exciting stuff. And, and that is a really uh, exciting area for us uh, because these patients have very poor treatment options uh, and they desperately need disease-modifying drugs, and, and we hope that that's what we can deliver. So, Kate, you, you sort of broadened out the trio, though, because... I understand that the the group behind the the IP sort of grew to a slightly larger group. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so initially it was the three labs. It was um, uh, Luke O'Neill's lab in Ireland and his um, PhD student. His PhD student then graduated her PhD and came to postdoc in my lab, <laughs> where she oh. continued to work on the same project but in a different continent and a different lab. So that, that was Rebecca Cole. Um, who's uh, enormously talented and um, has really been the, the major driver of the entire uh, endeavour um, across, you know, two different continents. Uh, and also Matt Cooper and a very talented uh, then postdoc in, her, in his lab called Avril Robertson. She now runs her own group um, as a professor at UQ. So it was the five of us initially as the sort of core team who were working on this, uh, who developed the uh, initial intellectual property um, with our um, suite of patented molecules. Uh, and then uh, the team grew again uh, when we started uh, the startup company Inflazome uh, and raised funding for that. What was the catalyst for actually forming this st a startup? And I will come back to this idea of international collaboration as well, yeah. but what prompted, you know, to sort of formalise this into a startup? Yeah, there were a few different drivers for that. And it, they sort of reflect in part the competing demands of academia versus commercialization, <laughs> which many of your listeners will be familiar with. Uh, so at this point, we had an extremely exciting uh, tool compound for which we didn't have intellectual property. This is MCC 950. Um, and we were very excited because this was the first uh, compound to show proof principle that inflammasomes are druggable targets in disease and that drugging inflammasomes can change the course of a disease. Uh, and so we were very keen to publish that, 
but we didn't want to um, you know spoil the um, potential commercial avenues for that. You so, don't want to give too much away. No, exactly. It's um, always a bit of a, a difficulty, right? Um, so while we were compiling the paper that reported this um, prototype molecule, uh, we were also um, very heavily in a drug discovery and development program where we were doing structure activity analyses. We were um, screening a whole bunch of candidate compounds and trying to work out what our leads were and all that sort of thing. And uh, so what we ended up doing is um, patenting our compounds in uh, various patent families. It ended up being three major patent families from UQ um, whilst putting together the paper. <laughs> um, and uh, these then were sort of launched in parallel to one another. Obviously, the patents had to be in place before we could publish. Um, but we then published the um, paper with the um, tool compound MCC950. Um, and that was in Nature Medicine in, um, some years ago now. And um, immediately prior to the publication of the paper, we also patented our um, molecules. And so being part of the, the University of Queensland ecosystem there, you've got, uni uh, you've got UniQuest, who's the, the university's commercialisation company, who obviously worked with you to develop that IP structure. Yeah. And obviously that's incredibly important at this stage in, in development. Um, for securing your research. Yeah, so UniQuest are amazing. They've got so much uh, experience in these sorts of uh, endeavours. Uh, they've launched, I think, over 100 uh, startups now and had more than 800 million investment into UQ startups. So I think they lead by, a, uh, you know, head and shoulders, they lead the rest of Australia in this area. So they had enormous amount of experience. That they helped us with that process. Uh, and their advice was to um, uh, patent the compounds, generate some excitement by publishing the paper, uh, and then using both of those things to leverage investment into a startup company to then sort of launch the next stage of drug development. And that's uh, precisely what we did, actually. And it turned out to be a successful strategy. What a, a huge milestone, I guess, in the direction and the progress that, that you would be taking. Absolutely, absolutely. MTP Connect um, partners with UniQuest on a couple of our programs, the Biomedical Translation Bridge Program and our Targeted Translation Research Accelerator for Diabetes and Cardiovascular Disease. Mm -hmm. So that brings a huge amount of expertise to um, MTP Connect's programs in this area as well. So I'm interested in the, the idea of this international collaboration and what this can bring to a research team. And, and I wonder... Ian, maybe uh, you could just weigh in on this um, about the importance of collaboration, international collaboration, getting the right team together. What difference can this make for research discoveries? So I, I, I think that's a really great question is, you know, why do we collaborate and why do we seek out people from across the world? You know, we'll all know from, you know, just our general working lives that we like to work with people that we like, you know, that the people we can get on with. And so that's an important facet of, of, of collaboration. But collaboration is also expertise, it's bringing the right people in together that will bring the expertise together that will solve the, 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 the problem for you. And I guess, you know, the, the international dimension gives you a way of thinking about problems 
that you, you, you might not think about otherwise. You get those different perspectives, um, you know, of people looking at problems from different directions, whereas, you know, your, your close colleagues might be a bit siloed into your own sort of thinking. So that's really the importance of being able to work across the, the national and international landscape. It's actually getting those multiple different uh, perspectives. But Kate's obviously benefited from the, uh, the, the, these uh, amazing international collaborations, and I'm sure she has some uh, perspectives herself. Yeah, for, for me, um, this particular collaboration worked so well because it was such a terrifically complementary mix of expertise. Uh, you know, with my expertise on the inflammasome signaling complex, uh, Matt Cooper's expertise on how to drug that, uh, with small molecules, he's a medicinal chemist, and Luke's expertise of how the inflammasome target cytokine interleukin-1 drives disease. Um, also, Luke is very well connected uh, throughout Europe in venture capital and biotech, uh, and actually it was through his connections that we got our um, final investors. So we we looked onshore for investors uh, for some time uh, and were had a lot of interest. But um, we ended up raising 21 million in that first round of um, Series A funding. And that kind of money is, at that time was almost impossible to raise in Australia. I think it's getting more possible to raise that kind of money within Australia. But without Luke's connections uh, in Europe, it would have been extremely difficult to do that. Um, although the Australian landscape keeps changing, which I'm delighted about. What do you think is the key there around, I mean, this early funding is mm -hmm. so important because it's it's like a kicker it yep. kind of just gives you that additional momentum right to really go further um and yeah. then it also acts as a leverage because it it then attracts other investors attracts interest and that you know interest grows and and perhaps investment investor confidence also grows in our case it was it was all of those things you've just mentioned but also probably even more important was the fact that as soon as we published the Nature Medicine paper, um, all the drug companies, you know, big and small around the world suddenly sat up and looked at this and thought, oh my God, inflammasomes are druggable targets. This is amazing. We need a drug program on this. So suddenly all the big major pharmaceutical companies resuscitated their um, programs in this area and started trying to ta target inflammasomes. Biotech sprung up left, right and centre with competing you know, aims to us. Um, so we really needed a big chunk of money to get there first <laughs> or to, to accelerate the program. Otherwise, if, if we had this venture capital investment of $5 million or something like that, which sounds enormous but in these sorts of terms is not, we just wouldn't have been able to get there fast enough. We would have been left for dead. Um, in that kind of uh, environment of extreme competition, we would only have been in, a, in with a chance if we had some really serious capital behind us. And that's um, that's why it was so important to, to get that early large investment. Kate, so the race is on. Suddenly, the international stage and Inflazome is the lead actor in this game. What, what do you do to suddenly have to fast track everything? Well, I'm fortunate that... Um, so once our intellectual property was licensed to Inflazone, my role then became not to be the sort of 
doer of the program, <laughs> um, which I had been um, one of the doers until then. Uh, but I then joined the Scientific Advisory Board of Inflazome to help steer the commercial program, uh, which was a wonderful experience. Um, and really the program then was driven by the people at Inflazome, uh, Matt Cooper as CEO and Luke O'Neill as CSO, had recruited a really amazing team of people who were very skilled um, at exactly, you know, this sort of endeavour. Um, and they really drove the program further um, to get, you know, as far as we have today. <laughs> so um, I, I would not claim any of the credit there of, uh, of what Inflazome has done because my contributions have been a bit divorced from that. But um, but they, they've done a really wonderful job of uh, accelerating the research program getting further investment for clinical trials and then, you know, obviously pushing it all the way through to the acquisition to, from Roche. How important is it to be a part of something like the Institute for Molecular Biosciences where you are surrounded by other science and research teams working parallel but on, on other activities? Is, is there an element of a collective? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think IMB is unique um, around the world because it was developed specifically with the idea of bringing together many dis different disciplines with the absolute objective to make real world impact by um, delivering goods, <laughs> whether it be drugs, whether it be solar biofuels, whether it be um, diagnostics, you know, those sorts of things. It's, it's taking everything all the way from discovery, all the way through to translation and impact. Uh, and so that's always been the ethos of IMB. And not only is it structured that way um, and allows for those sorts of interactions, but it's really seeped into the ethos of the IMB that you try and take, if you can, your discovery research all the way through. Um, and that's actually why I came to IMB is because I was interested in being able to do that. You know, I'm I'm not a chemist, I'm not a uh, electron microscopist, I'm not a, <laughs> you know, there's lots of things I'm not, um, but they are things that I can do within the IMB because of its multidisciplinarity and the amazing people we have in the building who are experts at all of these different things and the collegial culture we have for collaboration. So it's been um, definitely uh, the culture of IMB and the nature, the multidisciplinary nature of IMB has been really critical to this project. I would say it's also been critical to the project from the perspective that uh, the IMB has really strongly supported this project. They supported me financially as I was becoming a lab head and in part that was because they believed in my vision to bring uh, to the clinic inflammasome inhibitors as novel therapeutics. Um, so there was financial strategic support from IMB and also I think it's uh, IMB has amazingly high quality discovery science and without really quality discovery science your translational pipeline is doomed to failure. <laughs> you really it needs to be grounded in really quality um, discovery science or fundamental science, basic science, whatever you want to call it. But um, you don't want to be translating something that doesn't have a solid foundation. So all of those things were really critical. Also, IMB's part of UQ and as we've mentioned, UQ's commercialization company, Uniquist, are absolutely key to any kind of endeavor like this for me anyway. They have so much expertise and they guided us all the way through um, and all the way through to these terrific, terrific outcomes. So, um, so for me, all of those things were key ingredients about the research environment that allowed uh, this to happen. Ian, maybe I can ask you about leading this team uh, at the IMB and 
how, how do you bring how do you keep this group sort of focused in terms of um, you know the huge challenges that your research teams face that's a that's a fantastic question if you know where uh, the um, molecule wasn't in uh, Luke O'Neill's research and so he, he went out to the people he knew and went off on a tangent from his research to, to, to develop something and, and, and in many ways that is the beauty of a place like IMB it's people with diverse interests coming together but to ask questions and to, to, to seek solutions uh, to, to some of the world's wickedest problems and you know the important thing for somewhere like IMB is to to facilitate those people to to pursue that research, to provide them with the infrastructure necessary to do it, to provide them with the time to actually think and pursue the research, and to enable that that transition from the research through to commercialization. You know, in IMB, I think we've actually done that reasonably well. You know, from from over the last twenty years when it was founded. Um, in that uh, 50% of the University of Queensland's IP actually comes from this building. So that's been an incredible success. We hope you're enjoying the Insulzone story with Professor Kate Schroeder and Professor Ian Henderson. You're listening to the 100th episode of the MTV Connect podcast. And to celebrate, we've turned this episode into two parts. Next week, in part two, we'll hear more about that record-setting acquisition. Roche have the the money, the clout, the expertise. They've got everything lined up to make this a huge success. Um, so it's really thrilling because, you know, they ha- they can take this all the way to the clinic now, which, you know, a startup company could never do. So um, it's obviously extremely exciting for me. <laughs> um, and there's also a lot of excitement from patients, I think. there's um, You know, we often get contacted by patients who are, really keen to get on the next clinical trial and uh, they're very excited about the potential for these inhibitors to, to change the well, to transform their lives really make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss it until next time